passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second edition of Pollock and Thurston interview, which is the uh, the branding that we are going with, uh, Mr. Thurston. And uh, it's a pleasure to be joined tonight uh, by an individual who is a labor attorney that has extensive experience in airlines as well as professional sports, which is very much our purview and the unique world of professional wrestling. A pleasure to have Lucas Middlebrook with us. And uh, Lucas, where are you joining us uh, from tonight? I know you are in the midst of a, uh, a very busy schedule, and we greatly appreciate the time tonight. Yeah, this week I find myself in in uh, Minneapolis uh, bargaining with uh, with an airline uh, on behalf of a group of airline mechanics, uh, and uh, I'm lucky enough to find myself in the middle of a blizzard. So uh, you know, it's also glorious uh, business travel. <laughs> Well, being from uh, uh, Toronto and Buffalo, we can, we can certainly uh, appreciate that uh, res- respectively as yes. we're uh, we're there's, getting hit tonight as well. There's a winter winter storm warning tonight. Yeah. Well, there you go. Right? Misery loves company. Well, Lucas, <laughs> I wanted to start off sort of just with two very interesting industries in mixed martial arts that you have a, a big background with, and professional wrestling because I think that there are a lot of similarities. Um, as well as differences as well, but the key being that the two industry leaders in WWE and UFC have largely flourished in an industry where fighters and professional wrestlers do not have any type of representation in the form of a union or an association. And does it at all surprise you that as revenues have just skyrocketed in these industries that this has not become something that um, – has been addressed. It still remains this, this great positive if you are the, the businesses involved, but has not been able to ever really get off the ground floor for the performers involved. Yeah. I, it surprises me as a labor practitioner and someone who very much believes in um, how unionizing in this country can improve your terms and conditions. And it also surprises me as, as, as someone on the outside looking in who, if you're you know, a, a professional fighter in, in the UFC uh, or a professional wrestler in the WD, how, how you don't look to the industry, to the sports industry, and realize that uh, the NBA players and the Major League Baseball players and all of these players who are who are making good money and, uh, and have protections are all unionized groups, right? And, and how you don't kind of look to the industry and, and realize that that may be the path forward. Now, having worked uh, um, on the inside, m- more so uh, in the UFC, but to a smaller extent with, with WWE entertainers, um, you know, I also I also understand from their perspective that the, that the fear of retaliation is is one that is very real, uh, and and so when that is factored in, the surprise level that they haven't gotten to the unionization yet, um, it doesn't come as too much of a shock to me. Thinking about the other organizations that do have representation, it's a lot of them that I'm you know, acquainted with are, are team sports, whether that's the NFL, NBA, NHL, uh, MLB. 
Um, are there some examples of individual sports that, that you know of that do have unions? That's a good question. I, you know, I know that, um, I know tennis does not have a union, but, uh, there has been discussions of, of an association, uh, or, or potentially the beginnings of a unionizing drive. You know, I know golf, professional golf is not, is not unionized either. Uh, and, and so, you know, one, one does not come to mind, uh, right off the top of my head. Um, but that still doesn't really alter my analysis because I, I do see the, the UFC operates more, in my opinion, uh, as, as one of the established leagues, uh, as it does, you know, it's still an individual sport. Uh, you know, but, but they control their fighters in a way that to me, it's more akin to one of these professional leagues. And, and with the WWE, you know, in terms of labor comparators, you know, I'm not sure that I would look to the other sports, maybe tangentially, uh, but but in in respect to WWE, because they have they have the added dynamic of of, of scripts uh, and and preparation in that respect. That I actually would would in terms of comparators, maybe look more towards entertainers, uh, you know, and Broadway entertainers, things along these lines, and which is also a heavily unionized industry. Yeah, I was thinking more along the lines of like why it hasn't happened yet, and that maybe there's something about team sports that just makes it more it, it increases their ability to make to have a union or motivates them or something. Well, I mean that's a good point in terms of just on the ground level, right? It, you know, when you're when you're with a team, when you're traveling with a team, when you're practicing with a team, it, it provides an environment where you can talk to each other about unionizing. Right. And a lot and a lot of organization and unionization efforts, they get off the ground precisely because of that, because the workers are able to talk to each other uh, and, and address these issues and realize that maybe this is the best thing for all of us. Right. Fighters, besides where they, they are in their gyms where they may be working out with a team, uh, you know, they're, they're they don't all come together, uh, even in a team mentality to discuss thing, things like this. Uh, and so organizing from the ground up, just from that practical standpoint, may, may be hindered. Uh, now you may have that less so with the WWE, but I think it's, it's, it's still an issue in terms of, of organizing from the ground up. As we stay with professional wrestling and we can be specific with WWE, can you explain to us a bit about some of what differentiates a union from an association and what would be the, the path that you would advise if professional wrestlers were going to go in that direction? Yeah, listen, I think the, the, you know, the, the fastest, uh, way to, to actually change their industry and, and, and effectuate real change to their terms and conditions of employment would be through a unionization effort. Uh, now with that, uh, however, comes this, this fear. There, there is this very real fear of retaliation, you know, get, getting booted out of the company, getting blacklisted within the industry. Uh, and, and that exists to the point where, where, uh, in my experience, people have been reluctant to attach their names to a union organizing drive, whether it's as an interim executive board member or something along those lines. So with that understood, you know, it could be, could be for both, uh, including WWE that maybe starting out with, with an association that, that whose initial goal or aim is not unionization may provide a path forward because, uh, people may be less likely to, to have that fear of retaliation if they're not pushing towards a unionization drive. Well, at the same time, uh, getting into a voluntary association may make those individuals more comfortable 
right? Uh, being part of an association that at some point could transition over to a union drive because people will then have become part of the voluntary association. Uh, you know, m- maybe through that association, they've had the ability to, you know, secure some sort of outside benefits for the group. Whether it's, you know, because you would now have a group size, you can go out and maybe secure some, uh, you know, group medical benefit rates where, yeah, you're still going to be paying a lot, the, the premiums, but maybe you can get better rates. You know, maybe you can, you can pool your money and get access to contractual review by attorneys, whatever a voluntary association may provide. What I'm saying is that it, it may increase the comfort level with transitioning to unionization at, at some point. And so I, I do see that it could potentially be valuable. And it would seem that it would like all signs would point that you're talking about your top five to 10 percent, the people at the top of the company that in theory would have the most power in that sort of unity where the others would follow and would be your best chance of being able to mount those those kinds of numbers that this obviously requires. But to your point, I think that paranoia runs extremely deep that nobody wants to be the one to stick their neck out. And I mean, you have uh, have worked very closely with Leslie Smith and I think just her situation with the UFC. I'm sure that scared a lot of fighters. This was a fighter on a three fight win streak that started talking about this and suddenly is not offered a new deal. And I think that just an action like that, it's it it sends that fear. It just underscores what is out there. Yeah, no, and and that that was very real. What happened to Leslie, and and really that what unfortunately the timing of her charge because after she got released, uh, you know, we I, I did assist her and represent her, and she filed a uh, an un, what's called an unfair labor practice charge for retaliation with the National Labor Relations Board, uh, and that was filed with Region Four, which sits in Philadelphia, because her last fight was in Atlantic City, where where everything happened. Uh, you know, we, we had success at the regional level, uh, and the regional level was prepared to issue a complaint against the UFC. They had made two very important merit determination findings, which means they find merit in your charge and absent a settlement, they will file a complaint against the employer. And they were prepared to issue merit determinations on, on really two distinct issues. One, that the uh, fighters were improperly classified as independent contractors when they were actually treated as employees. And two, that Leslie was retaliated against for her for her protected activity, uh, you know, forming, joining, or assisting in the joining of the union. Uh, and so we were elated, but that elation lasted for about eight hours. Uh, we got a call back from the regional office in Philly and said, uh, DC, which is the Division of Advice, uh, which is controlled primarily by the general counsel of the NLRB, that they had taken the case from Philly. Uh, and, and at that time, uh, we were under the Trump administration and the general counsel of the NLRB was this individual by the name of Peter Robb, who had a distinctly pro-management background, uh, pretty extensive. Uh, and, uh, you know, the writing was on the wall, uh, once it got taken away from the regional level. So unfortunately, it, you know, that was a victim of, of timing and, and, uh, you know, administrations, unfortunately, but you're right. You're right. Uh, you know, Leslie was a very vocal and out, out, outwardly vocal proponent of the union. And then to, to have the federal agency that is there to protect instances such as that not do what it, in my opinion, it, it should have done in that circumstance only increased, uh, the, the fear of retaliation that, that was already existent amongst the UFC fighters. Mm-hmm. Looking at professional wrestling, it is interesting to see that, you know, I, 
noticed certainly a sea change when it came with after the sale by uh, the UFC to Endeavor that you did see a lot of eyes open among fighters of, wow, this this is worth a lot more than we originally thought this to be. And with WWE on the precipice of a potential sale, uh, not to mention skyrocketing television rights, it still does feel like an industry that is much more close-minded, at least in terms of public. You do not see wrestlers in WWE publicly broaching this in any way, whereas fighters, you'll at least hear the issues about fighter pay. I think it's even more um, uh, just a topic that is not broached by these wrestlers in public under any circumstances. It seems like they're they're further behind than I would say even MMA is. Yeah, I don't disagree with you because you're right. I mean, you will see fighters from time to time and, and, and it seems like it goes in waves, uh, to be honest with you, where you get complaints about fighter compensation, fighter benefits, and, and you, you'll have a fighter sound off on Twitter or whatever platform it may be. And it gets some attention. It gets retweeted, picked up by MMA news organizations. But, but in the end, that's where it stops, right? And then I've often I've often seen these tweets and sometimes responded saying, you can tweet all you want, but if you really want to effectuate change, you need to organize, right? Because w- without without that organization, there's nothing legally, you know, forcing the UFC or the WD to bargain with you in good faith, right? And 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 yeah, you'll sign these co- these individual contracts. Uh, and to some extent, there may be some negotiating flexibility from the individual, depending on who you are and you've established your own leverage. Uh, but, but by and large, in part, the large majority of contracts is certainly in the UFC. It's certain, it's a take it or leave it contract. And, and for the most part, you know, the, the, the fighters are, you know, they want to fight in the biggest, in the biggest organization out there. And, and it becomes a take it or take it or leave it where they get, where they get then, you know, locked into what I would consider restrictive, restrictive contracts. And I, and I think the same applies with the, with the WWE. You know, there's slight differences in the contracts. Uh, and there may be some more individual negotiation or leverage, again, only from those that are, that are at the top and most popular. Whereas the rest of the group, they're really not creating much individual leverage in order to, in order to give them a contract that protects themselves and also protects their ability to earn outside of these organizations. From what you can uh, ascertain from the, from the WWE specifically, if, if they were to challenge the independent contractor status, what is, what is the, what is the counter argument that WWE would be making? Like, is there an argument for them to come back and defend these independent contractors, if that is how they are properly classified, like how, what, what would be the counter argument to that? They, so it let's, if you ever got to that argument in the context of a unionization effort, right? So let's just say for purposes of a hypothetical, the, the, the entertainers that, that there was a group that started collecting authorization cards, uh, from, from the, the entertainers and they got enough. They got to the threshold. They're an unrepresented group. So they'd only need 30% of the roster to sign what's called authorization cards. Now, from a practical standpoint, you want to go in with more than 30%, uh, because you could have, you know, certain roster changes that would affect that percentage. But that's the bare minimum that you would need in order to file what they call a representation petition with the National Labor Relations Board. So let's say they got to that threshold. They filed those authorization cards, right? Before you can proceed to a union election, the, the employer here, the WWE, they would be able to argue that, that they are not entitled to unionize under the act. And one of the arguments that they could make 
is that they are not statutory employees, but rather they are independent contractors who are not afforded the protections of the National Labor Relations Act. Now, what's interesting is if they make that argument, the burden under the law, the burden is on the WWE Mm. to prove that they are independent contractors, not, not on the entertainers to prove they are employees. Right. So the burden helps the, the, the entertainers in this circumstance. And, and if they got to that, it, it, it's a 10 to 11 factor analysis that the NLRB uses to determine whether someone is actually a statutory employee. And they look at things like the amount of control that the employer may have over the employee or the independent contractor, right? The ability to earn outside of the entity, what they call entrepreneurship opportunity, uh, who provides the tools and instrumentalities of work. Uh, you know, are you paid to train? Uh, you know, are you told what to do when you train? A lot of it comes down to control. You know, but the, what the WWE would do, like any employer do, is they would they would try to find the pieces of that relationship where the where the level of control is not as evident, right? Uh, and so for WWE entertainers, maybe maybe it's uh, you know that that the the employer doesn't pay for for travel, right? The, that you're on your own for travel, or you're on your own for for whatever it may be in terms of expenses when when you're when you're doing your job, right? Um, uh, uh, those type of things that evident less control over the work life of the individual is is what any employer is going to try to point to in, in order to allege that they're that they're independent contractors. Um, now, I will tell you, just like I mentioned back in Leslie's case, the NLRB is a very political body because the the general counsel is appointed by the president at the time. Uh, and so the general counsel that they have now is, is a former union lawyer who, who was an in-house counsel for, I believe it was the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. And we have been seeing since she took her office shortly after Biden took office uh, that that these employee independent contractor determinations are landing are landing in favor of of employee status, um, you know, m- more so than the other other direction. And a lot of the case law that, that that had been decided under under the previous administration is being undone. So timing is very important as as well. But to answer the first question is, you know, they would point to areas where they don't control the work life or where the individual has discretion in their work life to say they really are independent contractors and not employees. And, and one of the things that's that's part of a factor test would be training. And, and one thing that's changed, especially for WB in the last 10 years or so, is they've taken their training in-house. They've you know, built a performance center in Orlando where they're training wrestlers who, who they recruit and hire. Uh, and that would, I mean, in, in the, I've, I've looked at some 20 factor tests. I know there's, there's different tests, but when I look at WWE, I, I've, I have a document I'm looking at here now and it's something like 15 out of 20 uh, in favor of th- they are employees and as, mm-hmm. as opposed to independent contractors. And, and even in AEW's case, which they may exude less control, but it's still more than half the factors I, I get saying, yeah, they should probably be classify as employees. Right. I mean, there was, there was an incident, uh, not an incident, but there was an issue that, and it was, could have been a couple of years ago now, time flies, where, where the, there were a few entertainers who were upset because the WWE wanted either to take control or didn't want them uh, streaming on Twitch, I believe it was, right. uh, uh, using, using, uh, their, their names that, that, that the WWE felt they had built up as a brand. Uh, and, and they were going to either take that ability away. Uh, and, and so, but again, that, 
that to me always smacked as just the, as a significant amount of control because now you're limiting the the what is supposed to be an independent contractor's ability to earn outside of right their their primary work for you for you the organization and 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 I always felt like 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 that was a big factor if it ever went to that employee independent contractor analysis something that has uh, come up it's it's more so been the last 10 years or so specific to WWE deals, but I guess it, it might exist in others with like AEW and such is that the promotion has now had the ability that if you t- tear up your knee and are gone for eight months, that those eight months end up getting tacked on to the back end of your contract. And I just find that to be this giant aspect that could be challenged and i just find it amazing that we see these contracts that all the like you have performers that have no clue when their contracts are up because i missed a few weeks here i missed a month or two here and the back end it could just be extended and you're you don't even know when you can be free of a contract right absolutely i mean you you run into to really what can be endless endless contracts or 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 endless restrictions uh, on the individual and again on their ability to earn outside. I mean, a true independent contractor can serve multiple masters. That, that is, that was the intent from, from the beginning, right? And, and in my opinion, uh, employers have used that designation unfairly to their advantage to avoid the benefits that come with employee status or payroll taxes that come with employee status, things along these lines. But the, and, and you see something similar in the UFC too where they can extend contracts based on turning down fights uh, or, or something along, along those lines where, mm-hmm. where they can extend your contract. Now I know that was changed briefly in the 2017, 18 range in those contracts, but now those restrictive you know covenants have come back in. Uh, but, it, but it is a very similar, again, one-sided contract, both of the, in both of these industries, if you've ever read these contracts, these promotional, con- they are just, the only way to describe it is one-sided tilted in favor of, of, of the entities. And no question about that. And, and, and just to set straight, I think what's, what's a common misconception when it comes to independent contractor, um, and, and just, just the IC and employee issue in general. Yes, W wrestlers are, you know, signed exclusively to WWE that their contract states that they can only wrestle for WWE, but that, that alone doesn't, it, it, it doesn't make them doesn't mean that they should be classified as employees. It's just the preponderance of factors of control mm-hmm. that they exude over, over the worker, right? Absolutely right. No one factor is determinative. And that's the same in the NLRB analysis, right? They, they look at, uh, the 10 to 11 factor test that, 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 that they've used for years and it's been refined in recent years with a few decisions. Like there was a FedEx decision and things along these lines. Uh, but, but you're absolutely right, Brandon, is, is no one factors determinative. They look at, at, at the overall analysis of the factors and does it lean in, in, in favor of a finding, uh, of employee status? Yeah. I, I think it was last year or a year and a half ago, you said time flies. Uh, you know, one of my clients is the major league soccer referees union, uh, the PSRA. And they, they decided they were going to organize their, uh, the referees in NWSL and USL, which are lower level leagues, uh, under MLS. And they had a big fight when they collected those authorization cards at the NLRB over whether, whether these were, uh, these employees were titled to, to unionize. And, and in this situation, what was interesting is that, that, that the, the employer 
uh, in this situation didn't actually wasn't the one writing the checks to the individuals, right? It was the, the, the leagues were, were writing the checks to the officials. But the preponderance of the evidence in terms of the control that the employer had over the individuals, it was a close call, right? But it pushed that in favor of a finding of employee status. Uh, and they are actually currently bargaining for their first collective bargaining agreement. And, and they had to go through that fight and that argument as well. It would seem as well from a timing perspective that, again, comparing WWE and UFC is that we have moved away from a model where it is monthly pay-per-views that are contingent on these performers and having that big match, that big fight every month. It's now guaranteed revenue for TV deals with streaming deals that it seems like whatever leverage these fighters and wrestlers had outside of a very small percentage, it's, it's lessened, not, it is not, uh, it is not growing over these years that it's just, it's just further control that the companies have that, you know, it, as we have seen with the UFC, they can go three years without a John Jones. They can go two years without Conor McGregor fighting and their business is, is thriving. And I think it only, it only is going to deter these fighters and, wrestlers as well, just of this idea that I'm just a cog in the wheel and my absence is going to be uh, written off very quickly in terms of like what value I necessarily bring if I refuse my services. Yeah, John, that's a great point. I mean, the business models have changed, Uh, you know, especially the UFC with the ESPN deal, right? Their business model has changed. They're, They're paid now to put on a certain amount of events. Right by by ESPN, and that's why sometimes it feels like you're watching one every weekend. Yeah, <laughs> right, much. every every weekend yeah. you watch. There's there's a UFC event on on uh, on TV on ESPN on ESPN Plus, um, and and that's because the model, like you said, instead of going pay per view to pay per view, they're getting they're getting a constant stream of revenue. Uh, and and I don't know if that militates in favor or against the employees feeling that they should or should not unionize. And and like as you put it. You know, I'm just, we're just a cog in this giant machine. Um, but, but cer- certainly I think it, it makes it more viable, right? If you were to get past that point of unionization, because there is this constant stream of revenue, right? That, that you can monetize, that you can look at. Uh, and when you are bargaining with employers such like that, it, it, in order to spread the wealth a- around the group so that, you know, for instance, UFC fighters. So you don't have entry level UFC fighters making twelve and twelve, twelve thousand to win, twelve twelve thousand to show, and twelve thousand to win, right? or even if it's fourteen and fourteen, right? When you make it to the, I've always been shocked by that. When you make it to the what should be the pinnacle of your athletic career in this sport, and you're making fourteen and fourteen or twelve and twelve before ten ninety nine taxes. And paying coaches and paying for training. I mean, it's not, it, people just look at it as like, oh, that, that's not a bad night's work. It's like, it's 10 weeks of work, uh, that is spread out among your team that you are preparing for this fight. And you can't even guarantee if you're going to have three fights a year, two fights a year, much less the fact of, you know, you could be cut after one fight of a six fight deal. It is so in it, the power is completely on, on one side of, of the fence in those contracts. And no comprehensive, no comprehensive healthcare, right? No whiff of a 401k program. I believe that I don't know if the policies changed. They used to only pay for two of your coaches, uh, to, to go with you into these fights. And we know MMA, they have multiple coaches, right? It's mixed martial arts. Uh, and like you said, paying for coaches, paying for gym time, you know, paying for proper meals. It is entirely possible that an entry level fighter in the UFC who loses and doesn't get their win money loses money to fight in the UFC entirely possible 
And with um the the news about uh, WB being for sale, um, I, I've heard you know sort of two sides to the the notion of you know how how they classify their workers. One is that hey, look, we're, we're a fifty two week a, a year sport. Essentially, it's a TV show that's on live 52 weeks a year and there's no union. Sort of like you're guaranteed that there's not going to be this interruption because the workers are going to go on strike like there may be in, in other team sports. Um, so that's being sort of touted as, as a value. I guess if, if not even related to a sale, but related to buy our TV rights and you're going to have it year round and there won't be an interruption. Um, and yet on the other hand, when it comes to a sale, I've, I've, Heard people suggest to me that like, hey, does is so and so really going to want to buy WWE when they may have to deal with this this worker issue and possible misclassification of workers and maybe a unionization eventually? So I, I don't I don't know if you have any thoughts on like how does that play into the value of a sale or is that really a liability to a potential buyer? Yeah, it does play in. There's no question, right? So even in the context of uh, you know, outside of the sports world, right? So even in the context of corporate mergers, uh, airline mergers, whatever it may be, you know, what's going on with labor and where the labor agreement stands always is a point of discussion. But but what it seems to me is is that it, it, it unless there's a giant issue, right? Like uh, 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 there's a threat that that the industry's gonna or that that company's gonna shut down because of the labor issues. In, in my experience, it's an issue that, that buyers look at, but the money is so large in the context of these deals that if they want to get this done, they get it done. Right. And, and, and here, because there is no union and really is not a, I'm talking about the WWE, there's not a legitimate threat right now of a union organizing drive. Right. It, it, it for the most part is a non-issue. And, and even if an organizing drive got off the ground tomorrow, and had legs, right? That in and of itself, the, these deals and these investors are dealing in so much money. It's, it's not going to, it's not going to stop it. Right. And, and that's, and that kind of raises this other point that continually comes up in the context of discussing this organization, both in the WWE and the UFC is, is what you hear is, well, we don't want to go on strike, right? We don't want to shut, shut down the employer, right? It's, it's the golden goose, right? And, and that's true of any employer, right? They hold the purse strings. Right. And as a labor union, you're just trying to extract as much as you can of the, of, of that money. Uh, but a job action, a work stoppage is, is always your last, is always your last leverage point that you will use in terms of the labor negotiations or the labor relationship. Right. There are, there are many other points, leverage points that, that can be used before you even get to that discussion. And so that's a, that's one of the misnomers that most frequently comes up when I'm when I'm either talking to entertainers or fighters that may be interested in it uh, is is explaining that 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 is really the last leverage uh, lever that you will pull in your relationship with the employer. Uh, and and you'll know when it's you'll know when you're getting there. My last question is just uh, specific to you. Um, I know that last year uh, yourself and Andrew Yang were really rallying around this issue. And I was just uh, curious about sort of what the, the reaction was like as you were putting that out into the space. Um, the, those that reached out that are genuinely concerned about uh, these issues, what the response has been and where you th- see things headed. Like if you're optimistic that this kind of organization among among wrestlers, among fighters, can actually come together in such a individualized set of industries. 
Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And you know, I I actually I met Andrew when I was working with Leslie Smith, and because he was taking an interest in in what she was going through in the in the plight of UFC fighters, uh, and then he took an interest in in the same plight of, of WWE entertainers, and he reached out and, and asked if I'd be interested in, in assisting. And and I said yes because I believe in this, right? And when I when I see a, a group of of individuals who who has unequal bargaining power, it's just the kind of the union lawyer in me wants to help. And so, you know, I did speak with a number of individuals and there is a legitimate, legitimate interest uh, amongst uh, really almost everyone that I spoke with um, to, to go the route of unionization, right? To, to gain protections that they otherwise have never had uh, and to gain a collective voice uh, up against these entities like the UFC and the WWE. So the interest... And the desire is very real, right? And it's very real in the moment. The problem, unfortunately, is that the fear outweighs that because, you know, it, even, even, you know, with a labor attorney willing to help, someone of Andrew Yang's stature willing to help, it was very difficult to get individuals to attach their name in, in, in any way to a union drive or an organizing drive. And, and at some point, the, the union cannot be a labor lawyer, right? And an Andrew Yang or whoever it may be. It, it has to be the individuals that are going to be covered by a future collective bargaining agreement, right? Because you need, it, it's an association, right? And you need the association to make governing decisions. So you need a governing body, like an interim executive board or something along these lines. So at its core, you need either, either current or maybe former entertainers that would be willing to serve in those roles uh, in order to get the union off, off the ground uh, and, and without an ability for someone to even attach their name as a, as a former entertainer, it makes it very difficult because like I said, you, you, you cannot have a union that's just a labor lawyer uh, and an outsider, even if those people are willing to help, right? You need that or you need that organic participation. You, you really do. Yeah. It Go ahead, Brandon. And, and, and I guess just a, one more thing to, to sort of address. I think there's such a lack of understanding among wrestlers and then perhaps among MMA fighters as well, just about how a union actually happens. We, they, you know, people may be listening to us talk about unionization and why it's important and, and why workers are misclassified in these industries. But I think it's just, just a totally foreign idea about how, how a union begins to happen is it is it you know as, as if it's going to be like some big revolution you know behind the scenes or just just how if you could explain how a union practically comes to be sure absolutely you know you, you, really there's two ways that a group could become unionized i mean there's more than two ways but there's two there's there's two ways for purposes of this discussion and 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 that is either either a, an established union wants to organize you Right. So you have a union, I'll just the Teamsters, right? Cause they're, everyone knows the Teamsters, right? So, so they, they want to organize WWE entertainers. Well, they, they have resources, they have organizers and they know what they're doing. And then they would seek to collect authorization cards and, and organize from an established standpoint. Could, could something like SAG AFTRA be, even be something like that? Absolutely. Right. If they were so willing and, and, and wanted to organize this group. Absolutely. They could come in, collect authorization cards. Uh, and the benefit of that is, is that you've got the infrastructure already in place, right? And so you may not need individuals 
from those respective organizations at the at the outset, you know, the entertainers, the fighters, to put their names out there. Right? And and so that is an option, although it is not one that we've seen come to fruition uh, in in recent years or or even in in years prior to that. And the, and the second way is to do it organically, like a grassroots union organizing effort where you literally create the union from the ground up, right? right? Uh, you create the name, uh, you create an online presence, uh, you file, you file the requisite paperwork with the Department of Labor, uh, and, and, and you literally, you either pass the hat in order to, 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 to get funds to pay, to pay lawyers, uh, or whatever it need to be uh, in order to, you know, collect the cards filed with the NLRB, or you get funding, you get funding from somewhere, you know, with professional athlete unions, uh, and, and WWE, there, there's notoriety. So there's a licensing arm that in the future could go along with that, right? So all the major sports, uh, unions, they, they own and or share their licensing rights with the leagues. And so the NFLPA, for example, they have a subcorporation of their union that just deals with licensing for the, for not only their athletes, but they also do the licensing for, I believe, the MLB players, the NWSL players, uh, all these other unions who maybe they can't, they don't handle it in house. And that arm, get this, that arm of the NFLPA has become so lucrative that the NFLPA doesn't collect dues anymore to support its infrastructure. Right. It is it is a self-sufficient union uh, without without its members having to pay dues. So it's possible that 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 an upstart union for either of these entities could get funding on the front end because an investor may see a licensing uh, licensing um, options on the on the back end. But, you know, with, with that said, you can form this from the ground up and you, you get you know, potentially as little as three willing to serve as interim uh, officers or executive board members in order to make decisions. Uh, you start collecting authorization cards, which are one one page cards. Uh, and like I said, once you get enough, the bare minimum is 30% of the roster, you can file with the NLRB. And then, you know, you're going to get into an argument over employee status and things like that. If you prevail there, then you have an election. And if 50% plus one of the group votes yes, you're now certified by the National Labor Relations Board, and either of those entities now has a legal obligation to bargain in good faith with you over the terms and conditions of employment. So ideally, over 30 percent and before a hypothetical President Ron DeSantis administration. Right, right because the NLRB general counsel will change, and it will change in a way that is not friendly to labor. Uh, and, and all of these close call decisions we've been seeing in the past three years. It could go the other way. The NLRB is shifts with the political winds. Uh, well, Lucas, this has been a really fascinating discussion, and I think one that uh, any wrestlers listening to this will probably take a lot away from because uh, I constantly am asked questions about this. So to have an expert come on and kind of break it down, uh, it's really valuable information because at its core, we're talking about industries that they're extremely dangerous, like your window of making money. It's a small window, and I look at some of these wrestlers and fighters that – might be doing great today, but the idea of waking up at 60 and suddenly you're realizing, man, there was a lot of money on the table that I was owed that I did not fight for during that time. And now it's like I've mortgaged my health for this industry that is not, ha- doesn't have any responsibility to take care of me now at my post, my, my decades potentially after your fighting days are over or your, your wrestling days are over. 
right? That your earning potential is finite in both of these industries and it's finite in a short period of time. And it's finite right now without the existence of a comprehensive healthcare, let alone retiree healthcare, right? But comprehensive healthcare or a retirement program or, or, or things that set people up, right? So that for the rest of their lives, they can live comfortably for the work they've put in. Uh, and, and, and those are all what we call mandatory subjects of bargaining under the National Labor Relations Act, which means that an employer has to bargain those to an impasse with you. And that's a legally loaded term. Uh, but, but it's right there. It's right there in front and the fear is real, but anytime you're trying to effectuate real change, right, there's going to be fear associated. And in any of the labor struggles throughout history, they weren't easy, right? Baseball didn't get to its union. It wasn't easy, right? They had, they had Kurt Flood and then they had to challenge free agency and they, and they finally got there and the NFLPA took a similar route. And, uh, but in the end, it has paid off for, for those industries. Uh, and, and it, it always, it always reminds me of, I think it was 2017 at a UFC fighter retreat that they held at the, I think the, maybe the new performance institute. They, they had invited Kobe Bryant to come in and, and do a panel discussion and, and they opened it up for Q and A and Leslie Smith being Leslie Smith. She asked, you know, how beneficial the NBPA had been to his success, uh, or his career in, in the NBA. And without skipping a beat, he he said he can't he can't stress the importance that it's had. Uh, and 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 what he told the fighters, I thought at the time was perfect. He said we're at each other's throats on the court as competitors, but when we get in our union meetings, we realize that the rising tide lifts all boats. And so, despite being competitors and being against each other, they were able to band together because they knew that they were bettering the career not only for them but for future generations. Right. And, and once that level of importance gets elevated over the fear, that's when you can see real change start to happen. Uh, but it's something where the timing does have to be right in the context of the NLRB and the timing right is right now. Um, but that could change in a few years. Uh, well, Lucas, thanks uh, for taking so much time tonight to uh, answer all of our questions. Uh, perhaps down the road, we can, uh, bring you back because there's, uh, Plenty of follow up, I am sure, in this uh, in this whole industry, and you know the the status of the antitrust suits in uh, that that are out there against the UFC. I think those are very interesting blueprints, given the the similarities of these industries we're discussing. So, uh, thank you so much for uh, the time tonight. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure, and thanks for having me.